we're back with a new episode of Art Matters. I'm your host, Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Find us online at artuk.org and on social media at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot for our social channels. Also use the hashtag ArtMattersPodcast if you want to join the conversation about any of our episodes. If you like what we're doing with this series, please remember to rate and subscribe to this podcast. It really helps us in our quest to bring art to the masses, and it warms my heart personally. With this series, we like to have taster discussions on the intersections between art and pop culture. Today, we're stepping a little beyond pop culture, and we're talking about synesthesia. Joining me is James Wannerton, president of the UK Synesthesia Association, and one of the first people to have his synesthetic experiences researched. James has presented on this topic many times and has also done exhibitions with synesthetic art collaborations at institutions like the V&A and Harvard University. Welcome to you, James. Hello. Hi. I am too excited about this conversation today. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Uh, This is um, such a fascinating topic. And in telling people that I was going to talk about this today, the first question I've had after a blank stare is, what is synesthesia? Okay, right. Well, um, explain simply, in a nutshell, synesthesia is a neurological trait or condition, and it results in the joining or merging of senses that aren't normally connected. So uh, what happens is you get a stimulation in one sense, and it causes an involuntary reaction in a well, in one or more, more than one of the other senses. And, for example, someone with synesthesia may hear colour or they can see sound. And these sensory experiences are automatic and they can't be turned off or turned down. And they do tend to be part of the earliest memories. So to the individual concern, they're as normal and as natural as breathing. So when you say someone can, when you say see colour, do you mean at the same time, or hear colour, at the same time that they're hearing a sound, they're also seeing a colour at the same time? Yeah, I mean, what actually happens is there's a there's a, a physical link between those two areas of the brain. They're normally separate. And uh, what happens is if somebody, um, say, hears a sound, it will send an automatic signal to the sight area that deals with colour. And so they get this signal going there, and so they automatically associate a colour with a, with a specific sound. It's usually a very, very specific colour too. And is this something that um, is consistent from person to person? Like, would all people who see colours when they hear sounds, see the same colours with the same sounds? Oh, no, definitely not, no. Um, I mean, I, we, we've got a, a documented case of twins. Now, these twins were brought up in the, exactly the same, they used to dress the same, exactly the same environment, went to the same school, sat next to each other in the same school, mm-hmm. uh, spent all their time with one another. They used to argue like crazy about the different colours for different letters. Um most uh, most synesthetes won't won't agree. If there's a, a a culture or a semantic link, then maybe they would. You know, I mean, say a sound might correspond. Um, say a, for example, a crispy sound. If you hear that, you might automatically um, uh-huh. feel or associate that with a crispy taste of something. Uh, I mean, that's uh, that's normal and natural, and most people do that. So where does this where does this come from is it something you're born with yeah but i was going to say i mean these things um they are automatic and they're they're very very um they're very very normal and natural to uh to the individual involved Mm -hmm. 
Um, I've got to point out at this juncture that it isn't a disorder because a lot of people used to consider it a disorder, but the vast majority of synesthetes report that, if anything, it's an added or enhanced perception. Right. I mean, there's a t- tiny number that uh, report difficulties with things like overload, geosensory overload. It's a bit like uh, those suffered by uh, autists, for example. Not quite as severe, but very similar in, uh, in makeup. And again, it's something that's been known about for, for many centuries. Uh, particularly amongst musicians and artists. Has it always had a name or is it more recent that there's been a name applied to the kind of connections? Well, the, the actual name itself, synesthesia, is uh, is made up of two, I suppose, I, I think the, the Greek, syn, which is uh, joined or connected, and thesia, which is senses. So it's a, it's a Greek word. It was actually mentioned in ancient Greek writings. Um, I can't remember the, uh, the, the actual philosopher, but it, it has been mentioned before in, in ancient Greek writings. Um, it's like most things. It's it, there's been ebbs and flows in interest in synesthesia. It's a bit like you know when times are hard, you've got other things to to think about. Therefore, the population yeah. thinks about other things. <laughs> yeah, like and, surviving. Exactly, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <yeah>, eating. Because <laughs> one of the questions you asked was where does it come from? I think that's fairly important to uh, to, to discuss at this point, just to to give it some some sort of physical form. Um, it's believed by certainly the vast majority of researchers that we're all born synesthetes and as adults um, what, what actually happens is our five main senses are all processed by different areas of the brain and they all, all operate independently in one another but at birth the brain is a real neural soup with all sorts of extra connections going on out there and as it develops through infancy there's a gene that comes into play which cuts all these extra connections now, the problem is, in some cases, this pruning gene doesn't actually carry out all its work and it leaves some of those extra neural connections in place. Mm. So that's where you get a synesthete from. Um, it is genetic as well, so uh, it can pass down through generations. And there are a few isolated cases of acquired synesthesia. This is where it just happens, you know, in midlife. Um, that usually follows head trauma or emotional trauma and you can also lose it in the same way i've known people lose it because of a, a, a head trauma or emotional trauma oh i think that would be sad to to have it and then lose it i know it's uh, it's quite a distressing process it might not sound much to uh, to people who haven't had it but it's a bit like having your, your sense of smell taken away it is, yeah yeah you know it's, it's that fundamental uh, part of who you are and how you perceive things interesting yeah, the other thing I'd like to mention is the prevalence of synesthesia as well, because it is quite prevalent, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it surprised me when I originally found out. The most reliable sources uh, so far suggest that you're looking at about one in 23, about 4% of the population. These include people with all types of varying degrees. So it could be something simple like uh, just having coloured days of the week. But at the end of the day, that's still a form of synesthesia. What's interesting to me is that so many people seem to not know that it's a thing. So it, it makes sense to me that there would be lots of people walking around that have this and are just unaware that it's even a thing to recognise. Oh, most definitely. I, I know an 86-year-old woman. She has the same taste, uh, same same thing as I've got. I mean, she tastes sounds, which is quite a, an intrusive kind of synesthesia. And she said the same thing. She was in her 80s, and she used to think everybody did it. But it just never, ever occurred to her to bring it up. It was so natural, and it didn't cause her any problems. I mean, I used to bring mine up. It used to cause me problems, mm. but um, it never did with her. And that's uh, been the case throughout most of these. You know, I thought everybody did. One or two two stalls. Either everybody did it or they, they mentioned it once, got laughed down, so they didn't mention it again. 
So but there's the, a lot of people. Yeah, there's there's quite a few people across art forms who've had it, including I've uh, seen Vladimir Nabokov, uh, Billy Joel, Pharrell Williams, David Hockney, Van Gogh possibly had it, um, and uh, Kandinsky used to paint kind of musical compositions. So I wonder if you feel like it ever impacts an artist's practice or it can can have an impact on their work. Oh, most definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, in my experience, this is dealing with synesthesia in general, um, there's a growing body of evidence showing that uh, synesthesia is more common amongst the creative types. I mean, maybe it's simply a case of the synesthesia gives them a, a greater aesthetic sensitivity that makes them gravitate towards the arts. I don't know. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, cross-sensory experiences um, have to offer up you know, these artistic advantages because these experiences mean that synesthetes are they're able to express, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, what appears to be seemingly unrelated concepts in a variety of different ways. So it's bound to, I think, contribute to the creative question. I mean, there's been some serious studies carried out on this very subject. Uh, they do basic things like give you an everyday object and tell you to think of 30 different uh, different versions uh, or 30 different uh, non-traditional uses for it. Um, but that has produced fairly conclusive results showing that um, synesthetes do uh, have, like, are more creative, certainly in that respect. I think that the first time I encountered uh, synesthesia was in art history courses when I studied Kandinsky. Oh, yeah. And um, my, my professor was explaining that he would, um, I, I can't remember if he listened to symphonies and then painted or if he painted, pa- literally was painting a symphony as he thought it should sound. So he was painting the sounds in his mind that he thought could, made a composition. I'm explaining this poorly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't tell you what you mean. I mean, it, it, I, I follow the, the how he used to do this, and that's exactly what he used to do. Um, composers tend to compose music, and um, harmonies, proper harmonies, um, notes, etc., all appear as colours to them. And what they do is, you know, harmonies tend to be dark to maybe to, to one synesthete, therefore they can see a harmony straight away. And they actually use that in the creative process of composing. So Kandinsky, by listening to music and replaying it in his head, used to just to reproduce those on canvas, as um, I would do. If I was that skilled and I had these uh, these experiences, I would put it down on, on canvas too. Have you ever thought about just trying it anyway? I've been painting lately very poorly, and it's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, funnily enough, I've just tried sculpting, because sculpting is quite a good um, way of expressing a synesthetic experience, simply because it's uh, in three-dimensional three dimensions yeah. uh, and that's quite good because you can imagine representing the sound of a boom you know with a big cloud coming out the back and to get a, a synesthetes perception on that is an interesting thing you, you again you mentioned Kandinsky David Hockney you mentioned as well he was another one that used to create stage sets on Broadway and he yeah. colored them according to his uh, synesthetic response to the music of the show and he quite you know openly admits that yeah uh, Van Gogh, I mean, he had enough problems already, but he was once, um, I think uh, he was cited as being slightly insane because he used to, when he was working on piano recitals, he used to actually match up colours with the notes. Do you think, I wonder if it would make it uh, interesting to, um, so so you said Van Gogh had uh, a sound one or something. Do, do you think it would be interesting to look at a painting and say, oh, how can I make this painting sound more beautiful? Does it work in that way? Yeah, it works exactly that way. Um, uh, I know artists that do that. I mean, some artists will just 
uh, just paint exactly what they feel, whether it's uh, nice or, or not, and, and whether the painting is good or not is uh, is very subjective. Right. Um, but what I can tell you is that we we ran experiments many years ago, and what we did was we we um, we had artists paint their interpretation of a sound, different synesthetic artists, and when we displayed the uh, the results, we actually tipped them um, ninety degrees. We didn't display them in the way that they painted them. And um, people just couldn't relate. But when they were put on their uh, put, you know, re- reverted back to 90 degrees, people could relate to them. So it boils down to this prevalence thing that uh, we covered earlier. I think that most people, if not everybody, has got synesthesia to a certain degree. It's just that some of us are more tuned into the uh, to the stimuli. But I think we all have because things like that, to me, sort of uh, point in that direction. Yeah. Well, I always. Um when I talk about this, I bring up a story of, um, I was listening to a radio program that played a song and it said to, um, just kind of color out what you feel or think or see when you listen to this song. And I did that. Mm. And then I later had my husband do it separately and we paint, we like painted out the same thing, which completely shocked me. And I think it's a fun exercise for anyone listening now to maybe go do later is to, to go listen to a song and, and then paint out what you feel from it. Well, yeah, we, we did exactly the same thing with a, a project recently in that um, we went out on the streets of London and we actually played um, members, of the, members of the public or got them to listen to a track and said, look, you know, I'm not saying you do associate taste because it was to do with taste in this particular mm-hmm. case, taste with sound. But if you had to, if you really had to, what uh, taste would you give that? And uh, we played one song, and we played it to 13 people. And, you know, four people actually came out with the same taste. So, again, it's slightly beyond coincidence, some of that. And, um, you know, I've noticed that a few times. You get people to to actually try and notice, to bring in a multisensory experience, whether they're looking at a painting, listening to music. And it's amazing how much they do pick up. And it enhances the experience so much. I mean, you know, what, what could be better? The more senses you involve... Uh, the more involved you get with the actual piece. So one one of your projects I wanted to um, talk about because it's I feel like I saw it a few years ago and it seems so fun is your uh, project with the London Underground map and the the tastes of each station. Can you talk a bit yeah. about that? Sure. I mean that was um, I mean, that really uh, is the cornerstone or the, certainly the beginning of my history with uh, synesthesia, my association with it because um, it's. Though having taste for London Underground stations was one of my first experiences I can remember, taste experiences. Uh, I used to travel on to school on the Underground with my mother um, when I was age four and a half at the time. Now, I was learning to read and write, so I used to read out the station names as they appeared on the, um, on the maps in the carriages. Uh, I used to get tastes associated with those. I was writing as well, learning to write, so I used to write these tastes down alongside. So... Essentially, I've been collecting station name tastes for many, many years. Now, in the 80s, I thought, what a brilliant way of um, trying to explain this, the linguistic links with my particular type of synesthesia to university students. And I thought that would be a perfect way of doing it because you can match up station names with flavours. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's basically the history behind that. Uh, and what you've got there is uh, is my representation or my interpretation of every taste of every station name it's just simply replacing the station names with the taste they give me now is it the the sound of the name or is it the the look of the words or yeah yeah it's a good good question it's um to be honest it it is 
quite complex. That it's a mixture of all, uh, a mixture of all of it. Um, the, the first hit, the first synesthetic hit, would be the sound of the uh, of the name of the station uh, or whatever it is, and um, how I pronounce that myself. If I, you know, if I see a word, and I don't know how it's pronounced, and I pronounce it wrongly, I'll get the flavour of the way I pronounce it. Full stop. Sure. Yeah. And the problem with that is that even when um, I learn the cor- uh, correct um, correct pronunciation, the old one seems to to stick. The old taste sticks with it. Like a first impression. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so so with your other collaboration with the V&A where you um, did things mm. with architecture and taste, how does that work? Is there is there also a, so a textural element or a, a visual element to your taste? Yeah. Well, the, the V&A exhibition was, was quite an interesting one because it was the first time that uh, certainly – certainly that I'm aware of, anybody had ever tried to portray taste synesthesia or sound synesthesia to taste um, in in a graphic form. Because as you can imagine, that's quite difficult to do. Uh, and all we did was we create or we got photographs of um, famous London landmarks and um, made them quite arty, stuck them on the wall and gave people the particular, gave them samples of the taste as they, they observed them and see if they could make any connection. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had smells going on in there, um, the sounds of a tube train going through, because tube train engines or, or the you know the electric motors they used to have, they always give me the taste of rhubarb. They still do, but it's slightly different to what it used to be. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and so we had uh, essence of rhubarb floating through the room with the tube going. So that was the whole purpose of it. And it was all to do with deconstructing architecture. You know, I mean, um, you see something, you, you might enjoy it or dislike it. Well, I see and... In, enjoy and dislike it for, for totally different reasons so you're saying it only goes one way so if you couldn't for example create a meal with a poem or something could you it, taking it the other direction okay, this is something i've tried again with, with artwork i mean one of the one of the collaborations i did was working with a food photographer and now the whole purpose of that was to uh, recreate a graphic image of something that would give me the taste of um, a, a Sunday roast in this particular case. We went through beef, lamb, pork, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditional English Sunday roast. Uh, that involved a degree of reverse engineering because I can't do it that way. So what I had to do was read text, listen to things, note down what it was that caused the uh, synesthetic taste of, say, roast beef. And um, I would then pass that on, and then we would create an image from all of those uh, those separate things. So it's very difficult to do that way around. Yeah. Also, uh, an interesting development. I, I tried this, and it's quite an unusual thing. Is um, is creating a family portrait made up of their individual tastes. So, you know, I'd get a family, uh, and then I'd uh, obviously take their names, look at them, speak to them, because that all adds to the taste. And then we could create a portrait of food which represents them. Now that sounds really interesting. Especially if it was shot really beautifully, I think that could be really an interesting uh, thing to do. Well, it depends on the food. Yeah, there must be people that have terrible taste. I mean, this is this is the kind of beauty and difficulty of of synesthesia is that it's very personal, isn't it? So if you do something, it's not necessarily going to resonate with everyone. Like, oh yeah, that is the taste of that, you know? No, it's not. No, it's uh, it's an odd thing. Mine, because I mean, there's been a lot of research on my particular type, and again, the, the mechanics of synesthesia is the same for for every every synesthete. Depend, it doesn't matter which type they've got. So I can, I think I can safely say that when they find out about me, it applies to most others. Um, I had a t- 
I had a taste of Rice Krispies. <laughs> <and> I couldn't have <laughs> this craving for Rice Krispies. <laughs> you were talking about um, it being just like a personal experience, I guess. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a very personal experience. You, you can't – it's difficult to say where a lot of them come from. Um, mine's been researched quite heavily, so I know that a lot of mine are, are linguistically based. In other words, um, to give you an example of that – the word cheese creates the, the sound of the word cheese. It tastes like cheese to me. Such uh, Potatoes taste like potatoes. So there must be some linguistic link there. Mm. Uh, I think that applies to a lot of people because we start to apply memory. We start to learn memory as soon as we start to learn language. So language is uh, the root of a lot of evil and a lot of good. One of the things with synesthesia is the emotional pull, which is, again, important in art because you get this emotional pull with it. And what I mean by that is if I don't like the taste of something or a synesthete doesn't like the colour of something, then they do not like that object and they don't like it. It could be a person. And there are people I don't like and I haven't got any time for simply because they taste disgusting yeah. to me. It's a bit like meeting somebody with a funny smell, you know? Yeah. It would stick with Yeah. I mean, it's fair enough, isn't it? Yeah. And it, the same applies to art. The same applies to looking at buildings. You know, I can see things that I think, that doesn't taste very nice. It doesn't go well together. And artists do the same when they're painting their synesthetic experiences. It's the contrasts and the, you know, and stuff that I think that stick out more. Because you mentioned texture, yeah. I think, earlier on. Texture is one of the most important aspects of synesthesia. People touch on it rarely. They go on about the colours. Um, I go on about taste. But to be honest, it's the texture that pulls all that together. Um, if you get a synesthesia to explain, because they say it's red, they'll, they'll probably give you half a page of A4. On um, you know it's slightly thick here and it's uh, it's very meaty here. Right? In other words, it go down to incredible detail. So it's it's more complex than just um, a color, and there might be shapes associated with it. Is maybe is it beyond being able to put into words? Is that maybe one reason why people like to express it in art and music? I think so. Yeah, I mean, art and music is a is an ideal platform for this sort of thing. Um, it is very difficult to explain. Uh, it's a bit like me asking you to explain what it's like. You know, every single smell you 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 find it quite difficult and quite wearing, and it is quite difficult to explain something that's mm. so natural. So, time enough for one more. Um, story from from some of your collaborations i wanted to talk about your um hampton court uh collaboration that you did with the with the garden yeah i'm sorry yeah that, that was uh, it was interesting though simply because it was um taking something very simple like a garden you know with uh, just flowers and actually adding a couple of um, sensory stimuli to go with it and it proved to be very popular. But at the end of the day, it was a garden within an enclosed tent. We actually made the tent look like the inside of a, a skull. So um, there were colours projected in there while music was playing, and you could see all the neural links light up as they played. And it was all created around a garden that had flowers that reacted uh, well to light. And all we were doing there was um, just showing, you know, just showing people that you can you can enter this this dimension, and uh, and that's exactly what it's like. You're going in, you're listening to music, and you're experiencing all these involuntary colours and and stuff. And it was it was great. It went down really well with the kids. Mind Do you think that it enhances an experience? I think about someone like Heston uh, Blumenthal, who's always so keen about like multi sensory meals, where you spray mm. something in the air and you look at the environment looks like something do you think it actually does enhance the experience of something to have it be so multi-sensory yeah i mean there's uh, there's been a lot of work done in that direction um 
there's uh, there's in fact a multi-sensory uh, research department in one of the uh, Oxbridge uh, colleges, and that's all they do all day is uh, is look at these links. Um, it, it's something that's present in all of us. So they've done stuff. I mean, Heston's done stuff like play the sound of crashing waves and people are eating, you know, um, shrimps or mussels or whatever they eat, oysters, uh, stuff like that. I mean, that makes sense to me, and I think it would make sense to a lot of people. If you play Spanish music when you're eating Spanish food, it makes a difference uh, to the actual taste of the food, and it does. Then if you played, say, I don't know, something by Ozzy Osbourne, it, it, it makes a difference. The sound makes a difference. Again, I mentioned earlier that the more senses you involve or more senses you, you get to interact at exactly the same time, the more you become part of it. You know, I mean, a car's a car, isn't it? It was designed to get from A to B, but they made them red to make them appeal. They made them uh, sound nice and they made them smell nice. And they made them touch, you know, the feel of them was nice. That's just synesthesia at work uh, in the real world. Yeah, it's true. I really appreciate you talking to me today. This is really interesting. And I think that it'll be a really good starting point for a lot of people to um, to explore the subject and maybe figure out that they have synesthesia, which would be kind of cool. Yeah, it is. And um, bear in mind as well that uh, the Tate Gallery are recognising this as possibly even a separate genre because uh, it, is, it is a fascinating subject. And um, to actually look and to be involved in the, the process of the artists creating these things is, is quite enlightening. And I think it increases the enjoyment of the artwork as well. I, I agree. I think it's really interesting. I'd like to see more kind of things th- that bring all of these senses together for, for that more enhanced experience. It's yeah. really, really interesting. Well, everyone, if you, if you want to um, know more about this fascinating topic, please head over to artuk.org slash about slash art dash matters, where we'll be putting um, images that relate to our conversation today, as well as more information about James. There's also a very brief survey there that we would love for you to fill out if you have time. I think there's even a, a giveaway associated with that. Um, thank you so much for listening to us today, and please be sure to join us for our next episode. 